You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Justice is Served. I am your host, Mari Fagel. And I'm your co-host, Ebony K. Williams. And uh, up first in Case of the Week, now, Ebony, this is a story that really bothered me when it came out. Sure. There yeah. are a lot of allegations right now, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's going to be more allegations of racial discrimination against the NYPD. That's nothing new. Allegations against Barney's, mm-hmm. one of the biggest stores in the nation that's what's so upsetting and what is so upsetting about this story and one of the attorneys for one of these teens involved said his only crime was being a young black man the story i'm talking about is trayvon christian a college student from queens he's 19 years old in april he went to barney's to buy a Ferragamo belt. He bought a belt for $350. He had been saving up money from a part-time job that he had in college. And he bought the belt. He had the receipt. He walked out of the store and then allegedly a sales clerk alerted cops to it and thought that it was fraudulent for some reason, that reason being the color of his skin. The cops arrested him, handcuffed him, brought him down to the local precinct, questioned him over and over, said, how were you able to purchase the belt? What were you doing in this store? He showed them his receipt. He showed them his debit card that he used. He showed them his ID. They said, your ID is false. They said, how were you able to, you don't have the money to afford this. What do you think about that? Um, I think it's horrendous. I think it's unconscionable. I think it's unfortunately all too common. I think it brings uh, it brings to mind the situation with Oprah a few months ago mm-hmm. where she was, uh, I believe, in Sweden. I- I'm not sure what country she was in. Either way, dealt with something very similar that they wouldn't even show her a $30,000 bag because they thought she couldn't afford it. And I- again, the underlying subtext is clear that when you are a black or brown person in this country, there's a presumption that you, A, don't belong in certain p- boroughs, because we'll get to the example uh, in a second of a young lady. She was asked, what are you even doing in Manhattan? I mean, oh my gosh, how egregious. Um, so it's very much this kind of stay in your place mentality uh, that that's echoes of racial discrimination, point blank, period. Yeah, and you mentioned the other woman. So the story about... Um, uh, Trayon Christian came out in the New York Post. Then after his story and his lawsuit that he slapped the NYPD and Barney's with, a second story came out about a woman um, in Brooklyn, Kayla Phillips, 21-year-old nursing student who had money from her tax return. Uh, This was in February. She went in and bought a $2,500 Celine bag. Same thing happened. The cops, after she left the store, followed her for three blocks to the subway station, stopped the turnstile so she couldn't go any farther, basically attacked her, questioned her for 20 minutes, said, what are you doing in Manhattan? You live in Brooklyn. That's so crazy. How were you able to afford this? And she, again, she showed her receipt. She showed 
the ID and the card that she used and they let her go. But she is still planning on filing a suit as well because it's just, it's dehumanizing. It's yes. so embarrassing. You it you know, the lack of dignity. It's just, it's, it's terrible to make them feel this way. And... This is a real-world, much more terrible version of what we saw play out in Pretty Woman. That's what I thought of. You know, Hmm. when um, Julia Roberts' character walked into the store and they said, we don't have anything for you. And I wish the solution would just be for these two people to walk back into Barney's and say, big mistake, big mistake. But Mm -hmm. that's a movie. This is real world. And it's sad that it's 2013 and this is going on. I mean, we've talked about Stop and Frisk. It's sad to say I, I am not surprised when things like this happen with the NYPD no. because of racial profiling. But a store, Barney's, just because you're a high-end store, you think that customers should look a certain way? Yeah, and unfortunately, Mari, that's been my personal experience. Um, I feel uh, I've been in stores with my mom um, as well where it's only after she has patronized the store, high-end stores, um, you know, you can guess the high-end uh, department stores and boutique shops in our country where she's patronized their business so much and spent so much money that it feels as if she's paid an entryway to be there. And now it's like, oh, Miss Williams, we know you can be here. But before that, it's looks. She's been – I've watched her and she said – I mean, I know this is hurtful to her. Um, and It's been hurtful to me being followed in these stores because, the, again, the presumption is – you don't have the money to be here. So you truly felt, you and your mother, when you were in these stores, that yes. sales clerks were closely following oh, you? closely following. Sometimes they're vocal, Mari. Sometimes, I mean, we've had ladies um, be like over and over and over again, like, what, what exactly are you looking for? And not in a night. I mean, I've worked in retail many, many, many times. Worked at J. Crew and tons of other great stores. So I know what it is to ask a customer, "Hey, you know, are you 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 know, are you finding everything okay? Is there anything I can do to help?" No, these women were. You've been in here too long. What is it that you want? Let me figure out why you're in here. Is the is the basis of that type of questioning a lot of the time? And 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 people. They haven't experienced it. It's very easy to say, oh, you're making that up or you're imagining that or you're reading too much into it. But then we have these, like you said, real life examples that show us that this is really happening. Now, I want to ask that now that this story has come out, do you think that you'll continue to shop at Barney's if you hadn't before? I would continue to shop at Barney's as an entire store. Um but I believe, not Barney's on Fifth Avenue in New York. Maybe not there. Um, and also, see, here's the thing. This is and this is where this conversation really needs to take us. There are particular people who exhibit racism, and then there's companies. And I think we've got to look at the way the company responds to it. And it seems like right now Barney's is kind of trying to take a hands-off approach from this and say this, you know, we don't stand for that or whatever. So I think we've got to figure out as a country how we want to treat individuals that exhibit racism and then how accountable the companies are for that behavior. Yeah, I want to read uh, Barney's statement. They yeah. said, Barney's New York has zero tolerance for any form of discrimination and we stand by our long history in support of all human rights. Another controversy to come out of this is Jay-Z was supposed to have a sponsorship with Barney's for a product line. And now there have been calls on him, a lot of pressure on him to get rid of his association with Barney's because of this racial discrimination. Absolutely. 
What I think would be better, and that's why, Ebony, I, wa- I want to hear if you think that he truly should cut off ties with the company or, in my opinion, should release a statement saying he does not condone these actions and that he looks forward to working together with the company to get to the root of these issues and ensuring that racial discrimination in the store does not continue. Do you think that that is a good idea or you think just cut off ties, that's it? No, actually, I agree with you on this one, Mari. I think because here's the thing. I, I'm all about the power of the purse, which is essentially what cutting off ties and boycotting. And, um, you know, we kind of were on this this train of thought with the Trayvon Martin verdict and this notion of boycotting Florida. Um, mm-hmm. And once again, Jay-Z was in that conversation because he had tour dates in Florida. I think that's one way to play it. But I do think it undermines an opportunity, like you're saying, for... Barney's, Jay-Z, who's obviously um, a kind of gateway to many in the black community, um, in the hip-hop community, to have a conversation and then talk maybe about a proactive solution to eradicating discrimination and and maybe, I don't know, doing sensitivity trainings and, and different proactive steps to making all customers feel welcome, safe, and um, secure in, in going to Barney's and everywhere else. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the step you need to move forward Mm -hmm. and look for a solution Mm -hmm. rather than just boycotting the company. That is a That is a personal decision. I think if you or someone decides, I don't want to support, I don't want my business to go towards them. I don't want to support them. That's an individual decision rather than pressuring Jay-Z to cut off this association. He should use it for positive and for change. But he needs to use it. I think that's the key word. I think what would be offensive to many, including myself, because I make it no secret that I take a lot of issue with things uh, that Jay-Z does and doesn't do only because I think he has such a platform. Yeah. Like unlike anyone else, I mean, other than probably his wife, to be such um, a voice and also have such an impact mm-hmm. on um, black people and also young black people particularly. So I would really, really be disappointed and kind of pissed off, actually, if he said nothing. You know, and and right now he has not said anything. Mm-hmm. He has people have reached out to him, and he has not made a comment yet. But I think the more pressure he feels, I I would be surprised if he didn't come out with a statement. I I would be, but. Uh, I also think that we're going to see more stories of this because even, you know, Huffington Post, New York Post, the stories I've read about this, um, at the bottom they say, you know, do you have a story where you have felt this way at Barney's? Let us know. I would not be surprised if they are getting flooded with emails right now. No, I'm sure that they are, and that's what I'm saying. And here's another thing I say, and I've felt myself buying into this. There are certain high-end department stores here in Los Angeles, particularly in Beverly Hills, where – if I go into them and I'm just wearing sweats or whatever, I'm either completely ignored to the point where I have to, like, beg somebody to help me. Which is, if you've ever been to these really high-end apartment stores, that's not how they roll. I mean, they are high-end. They are almost like personal connoisseurs in those those stores. So that's that's one extreme. Or, like I said, it's the following. It's the kind of trying to figure me out, like, what are you doing in here because you don't look like you should be in here. There's that. But so to counteract that, because I've, again, experienced this since I was in middle school and high school with my mom and stuff, and I think I've kind of internalized it a little bit, Mari. So what I do is sometimes I've found myself 
wearing the uniform of what somebody who belongs in that store would look like. So carrying the designer bag and having the trappings and dressings or the shoes or whatever, where it becomes obvious to them that I patronize these labels that would afford me an opportunity to shop there. And it's something I don't like I'm, I'm ashamed of it and I try not to do it intentionally now like because it shouldn't be that way like you're saying uh, th- there's no uniform as to what a Barney's customer should look like and the pretty woman example is not lost like it's not fluff Oprah said that she was tempted to have a pretty woman moment um, and walk that in and, back and yeah. say hey I'm Oprah big mistake you should have gotten that purse Ex- down from that shelf exactly me. and buy up the whole place but then her, no, walk away and go to another store and send her business elsewhere. Right. Well, in, but in her mind, of course, she was thinking about not playing it that way, playing it like, you know what, I'm Oprah. I can own this store if I want to, buying everything to prove that point. And then she realized, of course, that's buying into it. And yeah. so that's what I'm saying. Like, even like that little behavior I was doing, kind of trying to display my ability, that's that's codifying it. That's enabling it. Like I said, it's not surprising me that NYPD took these actions. It is a little surprising me that Barney's took these actions because I worked at a store Mm -hmm. in Beverly Hills, a high-end store, uh, for two years in high school and early college. And we never treated people that way because we're right next to Rodeo Drive. So Mm -hmm. we got a lot of tourist business. So we would never you know, treat someone differently because most of the business we were getting was not people from Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. It was tourists who wanted to come in. And we did have price points for all, but, um, you know, there were a lot of high-end things, and I, I never saw that behavior. Well, I'm Because that was the yeah. business that we relied on, yeah. was tourists not from Los Angeles coming in. So we would never treat someone differently. I did see when a celebrity would come in, mm-hmm. I mean, everyone would hound around them. And I was the only one who didn't get commissioned. So all the people who got <laughs> commissioned were like hounding around Sandra Bullock or Reese Witherspoon. Right. So there was that. But it was never... Everyone else was equal. It was celebrity and it equal. Yeah. And I, I'm glad for you, Mara, that you haven't seen that firsthand because I'm telling you, it's an ugly feeling. Um, Barney's is a high-end example. Um, there's a beauty, uh, like the ma- most major beauty uh, chain in America probably, where I was accused of trying to steal mascara because um, – I was dressed down. It was like a casual Friday. I was wearing jeans and sandals and a sweater. And um, I'm, a, I'm a mascara connoisseur. So I use three every morning. And they're all like, like I can guess I say the brands like Dior, YSL, and Benefit. So you add those up. I'm talking about $100 worth of mascara easily. And um, I was like kind of opening the package trying to figure out exactly which formula. Because, you know, they all make like a million formulas. And this sales associate comes up to me and is like, why are you trying to steal that? Like that, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh my gosh, are you serious? And I talked to management and I explained yeah, my situation good. because I'm just like, first of all, I've been shopping at this store since I was 16 years old. And at that time I was almost 30. Now I am. I am so mortified that you would ever think that that, like, even if you didn't like me opening the packaging, which I totally get, that's fine. So what the manager say? Well, at first she was very dismissive. Um, so I didn't like that response. So I took it to district manager and she was very apologetic and she really made me feel like, and I was serious. It wasn't just about the money. You know, that's what I'm saying. It's not, that's why the boycotting to me isn't the best possible solution in my personal opinion. Um, It's more of an opportunity because I spoke with that lady and I was like, look, let me just explain to you something. I'm a black woman in this country. um, I've, but I've been on both sides of it. I've also worked in retail. I know what it's like to have people walk in your store and steal. The problem is you can't presume what a thief looks like on the basis of 
the color of their skin or socioeconomic. Just because someone's not wearing the latest fashions or duds doesn't mean they don't have money, doesn't mean they're not hardworking, and it doesn't mean they can't afford the things in your store. So let's just, in general, try to open that dialogue up. See, if that happened to me, I would say to them, Look, I've been shopping here since I was 16. I've been shopping here nearly 15 years, and you just lost all that business. Sorry for you. And walk out. And I would never go there again. That's fair enough. Yeah, and like you said, that's why it becomes a very personal decision because I think that I'm not mad at that decision. But for me, like I said, I I, I was actually really hurt on a personal level, and I really wanted to – I wanted no one else to experience that. And and again, it's a store that has a million and one locations, but at least hopefully in that store and from that manager's perspective, I hope that that made a difference talking to me and understanding that. And to some degree, brand loyalty can work in the opposite effect. Like a boycott certainly can be effective, but brand loyalty saying like, hey, look, you need to recognize the value of having a diverse customer base. Yeah. Well, uh, definitely an interesting case. We'll continue to follow it as I'm sure more allegations will come out. Absolutely. All right. We've got a pretty packed docket here for um, our uh, on the docket series. Now, we talked about this, I believe, just last week, um, the potential of this. Basilo Green has actually now been charged uh, with uh, providing ecstasy to that young woman. Uh, He entered a plea of not guilty, and he faces up to four years if convicted. Um, This stemming from an incident with a young woman here, right right here in Los Angeles. They apparently went to dinner. She went to prosecutors, what, a year ago, um, alleging that the rape took place and that she woke up and she was naked and CeeLo was naked and that's all she could pretty much remember. The prosecutors declined to file a rape charge, saying that they did not have the evidence to support that at the time. Uh, but now... And there still is and there's no, still rape, no charge. rape charge. The charge right. is on furnishing a controlled substance. And the problem I have with this is it seems like there's very, very little evidence. And it seems like they are trying to make an example of a celebrity because mm-hmm. there are a lot of perks to being a celebrity. But I do also think, and Ebony, let me know if you agree with this, that sometimes prosecutors and judges want to make an example of celebrities because they have that platform. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think for sure. Um, but I, I have a, another take on this, and I want to see what your thoughts are, Mari, because I know that you're um, – a you know, you have strong feelings about rape and the prosecution of rape. Do you think this is any way for the prosecutor's office to kind of evade being held to the mat, so to speak, on the rape charge? And so therefore, they're kind of throwing this young girl a bone in a way. I There is a lack of evidence of this of rape because, mm-hmm. I mean, f- I don't think that she immediately went to the hospital and got a rape kit and got tested. So, um, you know, there's just insufficient evidence of that. And I, you know, we'll talk about a later segment about I'm very much a pro and an advocate for getting rid of the culture of rape blaming and victimizing. But here it just seems like. I don't know. It seems like they're trying to make an example out of CeeLo here. It seems like there's very little evidence, and I was surprised that they moved forward with actual charges. Yeah, and that's why I think some part of me thinks that maybe this is just to pacify that issue. So they don't look like they're showing favoritism to him because he's a celebrity. Because CeeLo's, yeah, Yeah. involved. All right, next up, just by the bother, Lady Gaga. Something else we talked about in the initial phases. She was being sued by a longtime ex-assistant who was also her close personal friend uh, for unpaid wages. Uh, looks like to the tune of um, 
Well, I guess she looks like she was paid a flat rate of $50,000 a year, which I told you then I thought was really low for Lady Gaga's personal And then 75000 But Lady Gaga made $80 million in the first six months of this year. Exactly. So that's a long time. Um, but this uh, assistant, uh, Jennifer O'Neill, claiming that the singer cheated her out of overtime wages when she worked for her back in 2009 and for 13 months in the, uh, the year 2010. So this trial was scheduled to start November 4th. Um, and we see this often in, in the law. Mari, um, and you can testify to this. Um, right before trial is when the, the best time for settlement will occur, because at this point, there's the greatest incentive to avoid going forward with actual litigation. So uh, were you surprised that it settled? I wasn't surprised that it settled because Lady Gaga would not want the publicity of trial. And I think in most trials, yes, right before or most cases right before trial in these civil suits is when the cases are settled in celebrity cases. Oftentimes, they're settled even earlier before depositions right. Right. because Paula Dean <laughs> right, shows you what happens. Her deposition yeah. led to the end of her career, and then the case ended up being dismissed. She should have never. She should have settled before that deposition, so exactly. she never did the deposition in the first place. Lady Gaga got to the point of deposition, and that might have hurt her because some people. I'm going to read a quote from her deposition. Some people may not like her because of this. She says, "You don't get a schedule. You don't get a schedule that's like you punch in and you can play. You're at your desk for four hours, and then you punch out at the end of the day. This is when I need you. You're available, and." Whenever these celebrities do depositions, they're opening themselves up to criticism. So a lot of times we see settlement before that point. Uh, luckily, we saw settlement before trial because I thought Lady Gaga on the stand would have been even more ridiculous. Yeah, I do think you're exactly right on that, Mar. It gives these celebrities an opportunity to really put their foot in their mouth and become very unlikable. I don't know if you got wind of this. This thing went viral. This was Little Wayne gave a deposition a couple of years ago over – oh, my gosh, girl. It was hilarious because – for better or worse, very smart guy. He would not answer those questions in deposition. He kept saying no comment. I don't remember. I don't know. His lawyer must have been so proud. Now, it was kind of funny in the way he was overly dismissive and slightly disrespectful, but he wouldn't open himself up to that. So, all right. Um, everybody remembers Polly D from the Jersey Shore. Apparently, uh, congrats are in order. He has a newborn little girl, uh, but apparently a little bit of a legal dispute here. She's five months old and he's having a custody battle with her mother, claiming that he is not convinced that she is a fit parent. And he is indeed, I guess, suing for custody. Uh, the young woman, we don't know much about her uh, other than she's 25 years old. Her name is Amanda Market. Uh she was a Hooters waitress, apparently has a child with another man, and I think the problem here is, I don't think it's that big of a deal, but there's a photo that was released mm -hmm. of the baby with $100 bills. What do you think of that? Well, I think a couple of things about this case, Mari. I think... Uh I think it's ridiculous to cite her working at Hooters yeah. as a part of her being unfit. I have worked at two Hooters here in uh, America, and I thought it was a great experience both times. I think that's utterly ridiculous. The and fact that she has a job. Yeah, she has say, a job. She's, she's a working person child. supporting her daughter. What are you talking about? What are you mad at? I mean, so, and sometimes when you see fathers, and not always, not always at all, but sometimes this can be a, a tactic to avoid child support or lessen their burden for child support when they go for actual custody. Um, so I do wonder, Polly, do you mm -hmm. really think this woman is unfit or do you just not want to be financially responsible to that degree? For for a child he has yet to meet. Yeah, that's the other case. Yeah, you want you want to decide in your mind you're better fit to meet to, to meet the needs of this young daughter. You never even met her. 
So you think the custody dispute is a ploy for him to get out of child support? Be. I think it could be or have a reduced child support commitment. Sure. Because I don't again, if he was citing that this young woman was uh, abusive or strung out on drugs or that she had the child exposed to some other type of severe danger, then I could support Polly D's argument for sure. But you're not telling me anything that makes this young lady unfit. Like you said, this picture with hundred dollar bills. So she made the money. She put the money in front of the exactly. kid. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, yeah, especially but, in the age of Instagram, it might have been something silly and she thought was funny. I don't know. Yeah, and he is one of the highest paid DJs in the world, according to Forbes. Yeah, so. yeah, he's making money hand over fist now, um, which is great. You know, I'm glad he was able to transition that platform in Jersey Shore into such a legitimate way. But now you've got a five month old, and it's time to step up and be supportive, and not look for ways to undermine uh, this young lady's ability to take care of her daughter, if that is indeed what he's doing so we'll see we'll see what what happens on that i will say this that is a tough claim to prove some apparent unfit particularly the mother you better have some pretty convincing evidence all right grand jury um so moving forward speaking of um young kids adrian peterson we all remember the tragic death of his two-year-old son just a couple of weeks ago uh the young man uh a, a accused of the crime joey P- patterson he's 27 years old initially had been charged with I think aggravated assault uh, on a child. That charge, a grand jury has now indicted him. It has been escalated up to second degree murder and manslaughter. Because in that interim, the child died. Yes. And, um, Ebony, I want to think, I want to ask you, do you think the grand jury was too quick to jump the gun here? Because the final autopsy results are not complete. And the way the grand jury indicted him was based off of testimony from two detectives and two doctors. And second degree murder in Iowa faces life in prison without the possibility of parole. So do you think they were too quick to get this indictment or no? I think they were too quick only because I'm a stickler for this and I am a criminal defense lawyer, but I believe wrong is wrong. And I believe what this young man did, Joey Patterson, from all accounts, seems to be wrong and I want him held accountable. What I don't want is an overzealous prosecutor's office overcharging him and then getting up with an acquittal or something that's turned over on appeal. And to me, this looks ripe for that type of situation without a pathologist report saying this is indeed the cause of death. I mean, like you said, with no, what if it comes back and says accidental? I mean, I don't foresee that. But but if that were to happen, it undermines the whole case. Because the problem when they overcharge, like you said, is it could lead to an acquittal of the whole thing. We saw that in George Zimmerman. It, they, Casey Anthony. Casey Anthony. They overcharged because I'm not saying they didn't do those things but in the eyes of the law the evidence was not there to prove second degree murder in the case of george zimmerman and we don't know they don't have all of the evidence here yet so um you know they can always dismiss certain charges later on but um i think do you think because it was adrian peterson yes uh, and the profile of this case and the media attention and people are just foaming at the mouth for answers especially uh the heart-wrenching death of a two-year-old and i get that because i think i was almost kind of predicting it just last week and maybe kind of jumping the gun too a little bit so you know very very bad all right this is really disheartening too uh going back to this concept of racism that keeps coming up here uh new report shows that la police dogs have their own version of racism that they only seem to be biting black and Latinos. This is coming from a report uh, on the canine special detail of the L.A. Sheriff's Department showing that the numbers um, are disproportionate in the way they bite black and brown people versus those of, of white ancestry. So what do you think about that, Mari? What bothers me here is the numbers. Okay, so first off, between 2004 and 2012, Latino people were bitten by LASD dogs 
30 percent it went up by 30 percent and for african-american people went up 33 percent the most shocking thing to me is the first half of this year 100 percent of people bitten by police dogs in los angeles have been black or latino right and i I don't know how do you explain that like that's so crazy to me a hundred percent there are only 12, I know blacks in the city, I think we're 12%, Latinos maybe more, you know, maybe 20 something, but we're not even, you know, combined, not even 50% of the population. How is it a hundred percent bite rate? And I understand the officers may be racist, but the dogs, the, you know, that's why I think this report, they are urging the sheriff's department to collect more data going forward, possibly impose a moratorium on the use of dogs, which I don't think that that's necessary because sometimes that is a good use of force, but look into alternative uses of force and track the incidence of bites with dogs and their trainers. I think that's important because what is it that these, how are these dogs being, being trained, trained that that's what's happening? And that's what's scary. I mean, look at this, uh, the, uh, the independent, it's like an outside media source saying that in the 80s, LAPD used to refer to black youths as dog biscuits. When I read that, I was disgusted. Oh my God, that and breaks my heart. Jesus. That was in the 80s. I would hope that something has changed since then, but based off of these numbers, it looks like nothing has changed. So I would need... I think the report did a good job in exposing this issue and exposing the disparity. And something needs to happen because why are dogs being racist? Like there's something in their training that went on or in the way the police officers are commanding them at these scenes that they are only biting those certain people. And I want to read one last statistic. Between 2004 and 2012, the largely black or Latino areas of Century, City of Industry, Compton, Lakewood, and South LA and Lenox had more dog bites than all of LASD's 21 (laughs) other areas combined yep and that tells you what you need to know right there honestly um, <laughs> yeah. all right that's that's it for our docket it's crazy and okay now ebony we were talking earlier about rape blaming yes in our tipping the scales this week i want our viewers to weigh in on a question that was posed in an espn editorial this week is football culture rape culture I want your opinion on this, and I want all of our viewers' opinions on this. This ESPN editorialist said, you know, there's been so many instances, most recently in Missouri, where, um, you know, two teams were run out of town, basically, after, you know, accusing football players of raping them, then being bullied on social media, Mm -hmm. then being run out of town. We saw the same thing in Steubenville. We saw this in Annapolis, you know, either being bullied and run out of town or trying to commit suicide. Mm. And... It keeps happening with football players being those the, – the defendants in these situations. And what happens is they don't press charges. The mm. prosecutors don't press charges. And then later on, as you know, anonymous and certain organizations get involved and there's more political pr- pressure, then charges are later brought after these rape victims yeah. have suffered bullying, suicide attempts, all these things. Yeah. And so this editorialist posed the question – does something need to change about football culture? And I had seen in the past um, a change.org petition about football culture and possibly having the coaches get involved and talking to the players about what's appropriate behavior and what's not appropriate behavior. Do you think that is the issue? Oh, this is massive, right? (laughs) Um, And I, I, Oh, gosh, how to even start this? Okay, so I definitely think the last suggestion is fantastic in terms of coaches getting involved, players getting involved, everyone just being more aware of rape, 
saying no, what those boundaries should be. Absolutely. I hesitate to... And that being drunk does not mean consent. Of course. Absolutely. All those distinctions. Very important. I don't think they can be um, emphasized enough. But I stop short of a broad statement like football is rape culture or promotes rape culture because it's just a little too comprehensive for me. Um, I am a woman. I'm very, very sensitive. I have had friends, personal close friends and family members who have been the victims of rape and molestation. So that resonates with me very deeply. I am also a criminal defense attorney. I have I have actually represented um, back in North Carolina in Durham football players at my alma mater, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, NFL football players, rape and other sexual assault offenses. Did you see football players more often your clients than other men? No, I didn't. But that that was my personal experience. No, I mean I saw preachers, I saw football players, I saw husbands, I saw businessmen, I saw young men, old men, black men, white men, Latino men. So I saw a wide uh, variety of, of defendants in sex assault and rape cases. So I can't speak to that, but I can speak to. The political pressure you're talking about, I I represented this young man along with my um, senior partner, and he was a star athlete for the university. And I have to say they did not stand behind him. It was not kind of a Penn State situation where in any way they seemed to be valuing what he brought to the team or the school any more so than the crime he was accused of. I mean, they were very quick to, he was immediately suspended from the team. He immediately um, was suspended from school actually as well until uh, pending the investigation and pending the trial. I have um, to tell you, though, I think yeah. that's the appropriate step. Ah, of course. Because, of course. like, that is one of the rare cases where I think they did the right thing. Absolutely. And that is too rare because so many of these stories keep coming out where because of who the, you know, the person's, the offender's father is or right. their grandfather is or the fact that they are on this football team, you it know. It makes millions and millions of dollars for the school. Absolutely. That Absolutely. That then, you know, investigation is basically cut off and no charges are ever brought until, you know, media brings publicity to it and attention to it. I want to read a quote from the editorial because he ends up. Even though he suggests the question of is football culture rape culture, he answers it and he says not necessarily he thinks the root of the issue is reporting more of these stories more honestly at the start. He says nothing will change until we make the reporting of rape easier and safer for victims. Until we destigmatize victims and stigmatize offenders, no matter how popular and no no matter how far you can throw a football – Blaming the victim, unsubtle slut shaming, masquerading as advice is as American as apple pie, he says. He goes that far and he says nothing will change until we make the reporting of rape easier and safer for victims. And I agree with that conclusion. There's something I don't understand when these victims come out and say they have been raped, that they say, oh, well, you were drunk or, you know, you you wanted it. Well, that's you the know? slut shaming. Right. And I think that's absolutely horrible. But I do take uh, issue with something that he does say in here, Mari, this notion of destigmatizing the victims. Absolutely. But stigmatizing offenders once they've been convicted. Well, OK, well, that we got to make that full statement, yeah. because I think a lot of people stigmatize defendants and just the accusation of something like rape people put you in that box and even an acquittal and i've seen this and it's also heartbreaking to watch somebody who has had evidence even dna show you are not guilty and people still look at them with that suspicious eye like "Mm, maybe you did it maybe you didn't maybe you got away with that and that's really unfortunate too when people forget at the end of the day mari we have a presumption of innocence in this country and even 
even if you are convicted, things could turn out differently later on. I'm thinking about the case of Brian Banks. He Mm -hmm. was in Long Beach. He was a high school football star. He would have gone so far. And a false allegation of rape put him in prison during the years where he could would have been most athletic and most active. And it turned out evidence came up that she lied. She made up the whole thing. Absolutely. And now he I think he's with the Seattle Mariners. He's trying to restart his career. But I mean, spending all that time in prison and not being not doing what he was meant to do. It's, you know, and that happens. There's a guy right now playing, I think, the Atlantic Falcons, same exact scenario. And I think he, and he served, I think, five years an active uh, sentence on, on a rape he didn't commit. So that happens. But that's not to say that real rape doesn't happen. And yeah. So that's really, I think, where we're all at, right, is getting away from these grandiose conclusions about rape culture or destigmatizing or stigmatizing. We have to look at these cases individually. I do agree with his point that from the start, we as media are responsible for the way we investigate and and um, expose these stories and, and um, you know, share them and, and all of that. But at the end of the day, we must treat each case individually because that's that's what the process is. And I, I do think that we need to get rid of the culture of rape blaming. I, I don't I'm not calling for blaming the offender, but we do need there's there needs to be more done to um destigmatize the victims. Well, you know, I agree this with that has happened on college campuses. Yeah. This is happening far too often. Um so let us know what you think. Yeah. Tweet us at Mari Fagel. At Ebony underscore K. Or reach out to us on Facebook. Let us know is football culture or rape culture and if not, what's the answer? All right. Thanks for joining us guys. See you next week. Thank you. From producers Maria Manunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, Dario Kristen, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. If you have questions or comments, tweet us at BHL Online or email us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. For more exclusive content, visit blackhollywoodlive.com. This has been a presentation of the Black Hollywood Live Network. Hollywood redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.